Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. I had the opportunity uh, a few weeks ago, about six weeks ago, my, I went with my, two of my sons and my father-in-law. We went up to New York City, and we went and did the uh, five-borough bike ride that they do up there every year at the beginning of May. And it was a really incredible thing. We, we got together with 32,000 of our, our friends, and we got on bicycles, and uh, they started us in lower Manhattan, and we went up through, through all Manhattan, Central Park, went over to the Bronx for like a second, and then we went into like Queens and Brooklyn and in Staten Island. It was a really cool experience uh, to, to, to go do that with they close off the roads. It was, it was super fun. Um, for me, though, being there in lower Manhattan where it started, where the bike race started, all these people are gathered around, and you're kind of in the shadow of like the Freedom One Tower, and you're right next to where the World Trade Center was and the exhibits that they have there and all that. And um, I don't know how that hits you, but just being there, uh, it, it hits a particular way when you were old enough to remember what happened on September 11, 2001. When you remember that and you're standing there, it, it, it kicks up some emotions. It did, it did for me. I was like, man, this is the place. And you try to imagine what that looked like on that day. And you remember, it, it brings back those memories of where was I when I found out that that happened. And remember watching the TV and watching what's going on and kind of seeing that. I remember that. And it was an emotional thing. It's different for my children, though, because they're uh, too young, right? So they, they weren't there. They, they don't remember that. It doesn't mean it's not true that it didn't happen. It just means that they don't have any personal firsthand experience of, of the event. Now, they know about it. They've learned about it in school. We've talked about it. And so they, could, they might be able to tell you some of the details. Okay, this happened and then this happened. Um, and, and they have some knowledge of it. They just don't know what that felt like. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody who's probably over, I don't know what now, 25 or something like that, if you're over about that age, you have some, maybe some memory, even of when you were very little, of, of that experience and, and, and what, that was, what that was like. Um, but it, it definitely happened, and I can say, hey, I can, if you ask me, did that happen? Yep, I remember, right? But you go back and you start going back in history and you start getting to a different level of knowledge and understanding and experience. Like if you talk about the gas crisis of the 1970s, did that happen? Sure. But you're going to need to ask someone who was old enough to remember that, right? Because you may, you may not be, be old enough, right? World War II, did that happen? Well, yeah, there's a lot of books about that. I've seen some documentaries and all that. You could find someone who maybe remembers it as a child or lived through the Blitz or whatever. Like, you, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. We got it. World War II definitely happened. World War I, did it happen? Well, yeah. I mean, there's books written about it, but I can't go ask anyone who was there because they're gone now. And so we've lost that firsthand experience of it, right? But I can read about it. And at some point, I have to start trusting that what I'm hearing in a, what I read in a book or saw in a documentary or what I'm hearing passed on from generation to generation, I have to trust that they're not lying to me, that that's true and that's actually what happened. And what's true of like something like World War I is also true of 
everything in history, when you start talking about nations rising and falling, when you talk about um, religion, when you talk about just beliefs and events and world events and all these things, at some point, you're in a position where you have to trust those who have gone before you. You have to trust that someone wrote it down accurately, that there was uh, eyewitnesses, that sort of thing. Um, you have, in some sense, you, you live by faith because you don't have personal firsthand experience of it. And this is true of our of faith in Jesus as well. I wish I could say to you that I have undeniable proof about Jesus, that he lived and he died, like undeniable. But come on, 2,000 years ago, I wasn't there, you weren't there. At this point, we're relying on the testimony of people who have gone before us and that somebody wrote it down and that is, that is reliable. I don't have undeniable proof of that, but to be fair, I don't have undeniable proof about a lot of things that you would think I'd have undeniable proof about, like who won the last election or the election before that. We argue about these things already. I mean, within our lifetime, a couple years ago, we, we don't even get undeniable proof about those things. We don't have undeniable proof about the real causes of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I, I don't know. Like, I, I think I kind of know. Maybe I, I have to rely on people who are closer to the situation. Like, we don't understand the things that we think we do. We don't know if Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. We just don't know, okay? There's just a whole list of things we don't have undeniable proof, as much as we wish we did. And so I want to start in today. That, that's going to tie very much into the way this letter starts that we're going to read today. We are going to start into the, the letter, the book in the New Testament called 1 John. In 15 years of this church, I have avoided teaching 1 John. So here we're going to just remedy that and just get it out of the way, get it done. Um, and I, I haven't, like, avoided it on purpose, but it is a different letter in the New Testament. Uh, when you read letters from Paul, we're doing a men's summer study, we're going through the letters of Paul. When you read Luke, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, they're very straightforward. It's very, um, they make sense, uh, you're, you, they, they flow. First John, first, second, and third John, these letters are, um, they're just different. They're weird, they're very circular. Um, in fact, I'm, we're not going to teach, we're going to go this 10 weeks, but we're not going to do every verse of 1 John because he repeats himself a lot, and I don't feel like getting up here and being like, I just said this last week, and I'm going to say it again because John's repeating it, like, I'm not going to do that. So we're going to go through a chunk of the, the book of 1 John and, uh, and, 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 and go through it. And we called this series The Summer of Love um, because 1 John is famously known as sort of the love book. And there's a lot of mention of love, and that's one of the main themes of the book. And I thought, you know what? I could stand to be more loving. Our church could be more loving. We need a little more love in the world. Let's talk about it, and let's get into it. So I got the opportunity last summer to take a sabbatical. I went and took a, a, a class in Vancouver, and it was a, a, a seminary class on the books of First, Second, and Third John. So I'm not going to unload all of that information on you because nobody cares. Uh, but it was interesting to me, and I was like, let's, let's jump into it. So First John... We're going to spend some time here this summer. First uh, John's written by a guy named John. You're good at this. See, you're going to be so good at this. John was one of the 12 apostles, uh, one of Jesus' inner circle, and he wrote several books in the, in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John. We looked at that on Easter. If you remember, John was the one who was writing the Gospel and talking about how when Jesus rose from the dead, John got there first. He's a faster runner than Peter. Like, that kind of kept coming up over and over. That's John. He wrote the Gospel, the, this bio, biographical narrative of Jesus. He also wrote the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. That's some wild, wacky stuff. If you want to read that on your free time, um, it's, it's, it's wild and interesting. There's a, there's a lot in there. We will do that some other time, not today. 
But in between there, you've got the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote these letters. Um, John, after being in Israel around Jesus, he moves to Asia Minor, western Turkey, and settles in in the city of Ephesus. So you've got a letter. Paul established a church in Ephesus. Uh, a guy named Timothy, who's in the New Testament, he was a pastor at Ephesus. John ends up being one of the elders at the church in Ephesus, and he takes care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you're Catholic, you know who she is. Everybody else is just the mother of Jesus. But if you're Catholic, it's like Mary. Uh, so, like, John takes care of her. And if you go to Ephesus today and go to the ruins that they have there, they also have a, like, here's St. John his place. They got like a whole St. John thing as well. So he establishes himself in that region, and several churches have been started all around that area, and he writes this letter to those churches to encourage them, to challenge them. So this is John as an old guy, probably late, late 80s, 90, around 90 AD, and he's an old dude at this point, also in his 80s or 90s, um, writing this letter to these churches. And this is the way he starts it all off. We're going we're gonna to go through this. Um, 1 John chapter 1. Let's go. It's a small book, so it's easy to flip past it. Here we go. 1 John chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 1. Listen to what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Right away, it doesn't start like a letter does in the ancient world. When you get letters in the ancient world, and if you read almost all of Paul's letters, they're basically going to start with, I, Paul, writing to you, like they, dear so-and-so, they start with, identifying themselves, identifying the audience, and then maybe a word of greeting. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that would be a very Paul thing to write. John does not start this way. It doesn't start like a letter. There's no like, hey guys, what's up? Not much here. Is your summer going well? There's none of that from John. He goes right into this, to this lofty, like, theological idea, right? And he, and he jumps right in and is trying to get this concept across to these folks that are in these churches around Ephesus. Uh, and, he's, and he's trying to establish something right up front that's very important. He says, look, this was, what I'm going to tell you was from the beginning, from the, the beginning of time, from the beginning of history. And he says, um, he says, look, this is something, listen to the way he describes it. He says, this is something we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, We've touched it with our hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. You'll see that in a little bit. But he's talking about Jesus, and he says, this has been from the beginning. And I, John, as an eyewitness, I've seen this. I have seen Jesus, touched him. I've been with him. I, I, I know him. Like, he's establishing right up front, uh, there, there's some real history here, right? There's something really going on. I'm not, this isn't like a fairy tale. This is an actual thing that happened in the real world. He's establishing the historicity of Jesus. Now, the, the audience that's hearing this, the, that are going to read this letter, they are a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, and they're 60 years later after, the, after all this happened. So there's some time there, there's, there's some distance. So they, they, most of them are not eyewitnesses of Jesus. They did, they did not see him, touch him. They were not with him. And so John starts out by saying, hey, uh, this really happened, I was really there. And so John's belief in Jesus is rock solid. You couldn't gaslight John, right, about Jesus. You couldn't go up to John and be like, 
Jesus didn't really walk on water, right? Like, that didn't actually happen. Oh, wait, I know you thought Jesus died and rose from the dead, but that didn't really happen, right? John would be like, I was there. I saw it happen. Jesus was very dead, and then he and I had breakfast a couple days later. Like, I, I, you, you, can't, you can't fool him. In the same way you couldn't tell someone who was in lower Manhattan on September 11th that planes did not crash into a building. They'd be like, uh, I was there. I saw it happen. John has that level of eyewitness testimony, and he's trying to shore up the faith of the people who are going to read this letter because they weren't there, and he wants them to know the historical facts. And what they needed, historical facts, I think we need that too. We're Americans. We're thousands of miles away. We're 20 centuries later. And what he tells them to help them, I think, can help, help us too. We have to rely on testimony. We have to rely on someone who is there to be recording it accurately and being honest with us about what actually happened. And this is what our culture loves in America. We want facts. We want empirical data. We want to know something that's true in a sort of mathematical, scientific, put under a microscope sort of way. The only thing I will believe is true are the things that I can see and touch and know and experience with my senses. That we, we love that kind of thing in our culture. And John wants us to know, he wants his audience to know right up front, um, Jesus actually existed. He's not mythical. This isn't Zeus and Apollo, the gods that we talk about with lightning bolts coming out of their hands. This is an actual person who lived in an actual place. He was real flesh and blood. And I think that's significant because it gives us some foundation to our faith. Look, you can believe whatever you want. You don't need my permission, right? Like, we can all have religious beliefs. You can have spiritual beliefs. You can have worldviews. You can see the, the world a particular way. We, we can all do that. Um, but not all of our views are necessarily built on uh, facts, right? Uh, not all of our views are the same. Our religious views, we may have different religious views, but they're not all the same. There are some significant differences. And I think this is one of the interesting things about Christianity is that it kind of hits us, and John reminds us here, it kind of hits on two levels. So Christianity hits on the level of historical. Um, and Jesus is historical. The stuff that John was an eyewitness to that he wrote about in the Gospel of John, these things actually happen when, he, when Jesus takes bread and loaves and feeds thousands of people with just a small amount. John records that, and th this happened. When, when Jesus walks on water, we go, okay, this thing actually happened. The things that he recorded Jesus saying, these things happened. There's historical uh, data there that we can draw from, and it gives some foundation to, to our faith. And the church grows because of it. The church goes from a, a few dozen followers of Jesus, maybe a couple hundred by the time he dies, to within 300 years, there's about 30 plus million people who are following Jesus in the Roman Empire. That's unbelievable. There's never been before that or since then, since then such a rapid growth of a faith community like that. It was, it was incredible. And it grew on the historical event. It didn't grow on a myth. Because if, if what Christianity was built on is Jesus lived and died and came back from the dead, if that's not true, early on especially, you could just go check. Oh, is he still dead? Yep, he's still in that tomb where they put him. Fine, we can check on that. But Christianity grew because of this historical thing happened and then everybody started talking about it, and, with, and the faith was sort of was passed on. Our faith is not blind. Our faith is actually 
rooted in, in history, not mythology. But this doesn't just hit on one level, John's letting us know. It's not just that we saw it, we touched it, we could feel it. He also, he's, he refers to what he's talking about at Jesus about as, as life, as the word of life, as eternal life. These are spiritual words, not just this physical thing. He's not just talking about flesh and blood. He's talking about there's a spiritual reality too. So there's, our faith is built on this historical thing, but it's also built on this spiritual thing. There's something deeper going on with Jesus, something divine that's happening there. God is actually coming to earth. God, the creator of the universe, is coming to earth in the form of a man. And then there's a resurrection that God in the form of a man, and Jesus dies, and he comes back from the dead. That's, that's significant. Um, this is an event with a spiritual meaning for us. It, it, it deals with issues about life and death. Um, when Jesus dies and resurrects, it shows us that we can live again, that there's, a, that there's something beyond death. It shows us that, it, and Jesus taught about this, that we are sinful and that his death will pay for our sins. His death and resurrection handle some of the biggest problems that we face, not just physical problems, but spiritual problems, um, problems in, in our heart and mind, problems like, and you've thought this at some point in your life, maybe this week, maybe this year, problems like, why is our world so messed up? Or if we're honest, why am I so messed up? Why am I trying to do something and I can't do it? Why do I keep screwing up? Why do these people around me keep screwing up? Why does this whole nation screw up? Why won't those people take care of the things they're supposed to do? Like, all of that kind of stuff that kind of kicks up in our hearts and minds over the years. Christianity speaks to that. Jesus speaks to that. We all have a sense that the world is messed up and that we're messed up. You can call it psychological guilt if you want to go sort of modern-day psychology, oh, we just carry around this sense of guilt in our hearts, from, and psychology has something to say about that. Um, but I think whether you're a religious person or not, you, you all have a sense of, we all have a sense of, things are not as they should be. Like, if I was going to create this, I, I would write a better script than the one we have. Like, there are some things that are definitely broken. And I believe that we have this sense of, of a spiritual world. You can call it a religious hangover, maybe. Like, man, something happened. What is going on? There's something religious going. There's something spiritual. Even if you're not religious, you are still affected by a spiritual reality. Charles Taylor, uh, Canadian philosopher, thinker, he wrote a, a, a pretty famous book called The Secular Age. And he, and, he said, and he basically says, we live in a secular world now, but we are haunted by spiritual reality. And I love that idea of haunted, like there's this thing going on in your house, and it's there, and you're like, what is, this isn't right, this is, something's going on. And all of us, whether we are religious or not, we are haunted by the spiritual world. We are um, dealing with, uh, wait, there's something else happening here. It's not all just physical flesh and blood stuff. The, the uh, Julian Barnes, the atheist English author, he says it this way, I don't believe in God but I miss him. What is that? What is that? That is haunted by the spiritual realities that are out there. There's this inescapable reality of life that, that there is a spiritual side. There's more going on than you can see and touch and feel. 
John calls it, in the beginning of his letter, he calls it life, eternal life. So Jesus is flesh and blood, yes, he's that, but he's also the author of life. And he teaches on sin, and he teaches on death, and heaven and hell, and he points us to greater realities of what's going on here in, in the world. And if you have those questions of, like, is this life all there is, Jesus answers those. And he's like, no, you're made for more. There's something else here. Now, our modern world, our modern world the modern age, we have worldviews that are historical but not spiritual. So, uh, very popular right now is Stoicism, which I, I'm a fan of. I think it's interesting. Uh, but Stoicism is, is historical in that it's philosophy taught by Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and various people. But it's not a spiritual worldview, not really. So, it's historical, not spiritual. There are worldviews that are, that are spiritual but not historical. I would, uh, I don't know if you have history or uh, um, connection to this, but I would put Mormonism in that category of a worldview that is spiritual. It tries to teach spiritual truth, but it's not based in history. It's, it's based on things that didn't happen. So there's, there's, a weird, there's sort of a weird thing there. Um, and, and John is telling them that their faith is historical and spiritual, that it's rooted in both of those things. And I think that matters to them who are going to be persecuted for their faith. And I think it matters to us today who believe in Jesus because... Not that we are persecuted for our faith in this culture right now to the degree maybe that they were experiencing in the first century. But the truth is, if you believe in Jesus and you follow God and you are part of a church, you are weird in America, increasingly weird. You weren't weird in 1955, but in 2023, you're a little weird. I'll just be honest. We're all, all together, safe space, right? We're, well, we, can, we can talk about it. Following Jesus being part of a church, and the beliefs that that takes you, the road that that takes you down, this is odd in, in our culture. It is a bit of a countercultural thing. If you give away a percentage of your money to the church to build the kingdom of God, it's countercultural. Why would you give your money away? Go to a financial planner and tell them you give away 10% of your income. They'd be like, stop doing that. Save it instead so you can have it, right? It's weird. Uh, turning the other cheek when someone's, Jesus teaches that, when someone is, strikes you on the cheek, you should give them the other cheek also. That response in the face of, of uh, aggression, uh, that's a countercultural thing. It's weird, right? Uh, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus taught. That is a countercultural thing. It was countercultural in his day. It's countercultural in our day. We don't love our enemies that way. It's an unusual thing. All the teaching on gender, on marriage, sexuality, those sorts of things that have been in the Scripture for thousands of years, the teachings of that, those things are not popular in America today. We have different views on marriage, what, who should get married, what it means. We have different views on sexuality, what it means, what, what it's for. Um, and if you come along and say the Bible teaches it this way, this is what marriage is, this is what sex is, this is what all gender, all that stuff, you're going to be countercultural now in a way that you weren't even 10 years ago. It has changed that quickly. And so um, we, are, we are living a countercultural worldview when you follow this 2,000-year-old book. And, and follow what it teaches. And, it, and it's a worldview that the mainstream American culture isn't necessarily going to like. Apple is not going to come out with a product on the App Store uh, that they design that is built to help you be more monogamous. Um, Meta is not going to give you a deeper walk with God VR headset. Uh, Capital One does not exist to form godly character in you. Some of you work there and you're like, that's totally true. They are not doing that. 
and, and they're not forming anything good to me. Um, uh, you know, they, and, and some of you work for these companies, and they pay you, and I'm glad they pay you, and I'm, and I'm glad that you can, you can help build something, and, that, and, I, and I, my, my prayer always is that you take the money they give you and you do great things with it, that you are generous uh, people. But these companies in America are not going to play the countercultural game that Christians play. They're not going to do that thing. That's not what they're doing. We are a capitalist society. Capitalism is going to capitalism. It's going to do its thing. They are not going to um, drive you into a deeper level of faith and love and peace and joy unless they can make money off of you getting faith and love and peace and joy, which usually they cannot. So um, that's okay. That's the system that's there. Just understand when you step into this world following Jesus, you are doing a countercultural different thing that pulls you out of the mainstream, and it pulls you into what John calls the real life. He reminds uh, us that this is eternal life. This is what life is actually about. And then continuing on in verse 3, what do we do with that? This is what he says. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the response to this historical spiritual Jesus, according to John, the response is proclamation. Proclamation is our response. Speak up about it. Tell other people what you have seen and heard and know and what you have learned. It's weird. John is 80 years old, 90 years old. He's old, and he's still talking about the Jesus thing. But, like, think about that. Wouldn't you? Like, you may have met Jesus as a teenager, like John did, and you see the guy come back from the dead. I'm just saying, now, even in 2023, you see somebody come back from the dead, how long are you going to tell that story? Rest of your life? I bet you would. I bet you'd be at parties, if you party at 80, but I bet you'd be there, and you'd be like, all right, so I got to tell you, when I was a teenager, this dude was dead, and then he came back from the dead, and now he's alive again. I saw it. It happened. You would never shut up about that. You can't because no one's got a story to top it. You're not going to be like, I saw this guy come back from the dead and someone at the party's going to be like, my cousin did that once. You're going to be like, no, that never happened. This is, the only, this, is, this is what happened in the real world, in reality. So John, old John, still talking about it, can't shut up about it. And it makes sense because it's a game changer. It's a world changer. This really happens. He wants us to know, and he's trying to remind his audience. And so you got to speak up about it. You, 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 you got to talk to others about it. Um, t- talk to everybody about it. Tell your friends about it. Hey, I, I need you to know this. I believe this. Tell your coworkers about it. Tell the barista about it at, at, at the coffee shop. Now, I can hear your thoughts right now because they're loud. And you're sitting here going, oh. I, I, it's okay if I believe this. I just don't want to annoy the barista. And I, I don't want to talk to my dad about it because I know how he is about that kind of stuff. And I don't want to, uh, you know, I, can't, I don't want to talk to my coworkers about it because it's probably an HR violation that someone's going to call me in. And I, I get it. Like, to speak up about your faith, you have to be thoughtful and patient and savvy and careful And that's hard, but just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it. We should do this. We should speak up. This is our response. We should try. Uh, I'll tell you about 
tell you about Blake here. So Blake was on the video before church started. He was welcoming you here. Uh, Blake's a good dude, sitting right over here. Uh, Blake and I met two years ago on an airplane. I call this story, Blake's on a plane. Uh, we met on a plane. <laughs> I can't get these Blake off the plane. Uh, we met on the plane, and I was flying to Denver to go to uh, a, a buddy of mine for his birthday. His wife flew me to Denver to play golf with him for his birthday. It was a big deal or whatever. So I'm going out there, and I see Blake and a couple of the guys on the plane, and these are all young guys in their early 20s, um, and they're all dressed really nice, suited up, you know, and um, and I've lived in this area long enough, especially right here, but in Richmond long enough to know that if I see, like, this group of, of young guys that are all kind of suited up when no one else needs to be, you know, on a plane, people don't, although I missed the, I think it was good days back when we used to suit up for planes. I don't know. So anyway, so I, I start talking to them. I do not talk to everybody on the plane. If, you're, if you ever were on a plane next to me, I'm not that guy. Uh, but I couldn't help myself. And I said to Blake and some of the guys with him, I said, are you guys SIGEP? The fraternity, SIGEP. And uh, they're like, well, yeah, like, yeah, how, how'd you know? And it's, like, it's kind of obvious to me. I, to me, I just lived around here a long time. I, I know what I'm looking for there. And um, so we start talking and uh, really interesting, interesting guys doing some cool stuff. Um, and we started talking, and I invited him to come hang out. Come, I was like, I'm just up the street from where your headquarters is. I'm, you know, come over. We have church in the birth theater. So they came over, uh, him, and, him and a buddy, and then, you know, he, he went and traveled for a long time, and then he came back to Richmond. And, and since that time, has gotten involved in the church, uh, got in a, a men's group with me, uh, got baptized here at the church a couple months ago. And, and all of that goes back to uh, I, I spoke up on a plane and asked him about, what he was doing and what they were doing, and uh, it, it landed. Now, I'm violating the rule of public speaking, which is never make yourself the hero of a story. So I just want to say right here, I'm not the hero of this story. I spoke up on a plane to a guy named Blake, uh, but God was at work in his life. And this is God's doing, and this is what the Lord does. It is not always great every time I speak up. Just ask my wife. <laughs> it's like, not always great. <laughs> uh, but... In this particular situation, we, we connected, and it, and it was a good thing. And, and I think if you ask Blake, he would tell you his life is being changed here. Um, he's a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. I'd like to speak up better. I'd like to proclaim better, but I don't, don't always do it well. But proclamation needs to be a part of our lives. We have to have it on the radar of, hey, I should speak up here. This is a, this is a moment. Sometimes it'll land flat. Sometimes it's great. Um, which brings me to the last point that John mentions here. Proclamation brings joy. John says, you know, I, I, I'm doing this so that our joy may be complete because I think joy is actually in short supply in our culture. Um, we are, I've been reading a lot about this actually lately, we are chronically anxious as a, as a society. Maybe the whole world is, but America very much so. We are anxious people. And uh, we are medicating that in any way that we can. And we are trying very hard to make this feel better, to, to, to keep the anxiety at bay. And so we're doing yoga, and we're, we're downloading the apps for deep breathing meditation. And, you know, th those are maybe some of the healthier strategies that we're doing. We're also taking a lot of medication, drinking, just all the things that we're doing to try to 
um, be right and be well and feel okay. And so we're trying to do some stuff positively. We're going to cut back on sugar and, and we're going to do all these things. And I'm, I'm just not sure that all of our strategies are working to bring us joy. Um, we're getting some dopamine hits, some pleasure here and there, but long-term, overall, this deep, abiding, pervasive sense of joy, I don't know that we're getting it from all of our strategies. We are a chronically anxious society, which is really insane considering how much we have. Considering that you do not have to spend a lot of time on the drudgery of washing dishes. You can put them in a machine and push a button and it washes them for you. It's incredible. You do not have to handwrite letters and put stamps on them to send them out. You can send an email and it goes there instantly. Like the amount of pleasure and entertainment and convenience and ease of life that we have, you would think we would all just be kind of like floating on a river of excitement and fun and just enjoying things like all the time everywhere because it's just so great. And yet... That is not the way most of us are experiencing the world. There's a lot of anxiety out there. There's a lot of frustration, and we are short on joy. And maybe we're missing that the simple things will bring the joy. The simple things can feed that in us. The sim- a simple thing like proclamation, like speaking up and it connecting for someone, there's so much joy in that. When I see this room and I know your stories. When I see young men, the light bulb come on and they get hungry for God. When I see a a single mom come in and find hope and support and encouragement. When I see uh, new parents who are like at their wit's end, but they're, they're getting this stable connection with God. When I see empty nesters who are pouring out and into the next generation, and all of us are pursuing after God and trying to learn from him and grow with him. When I see that, it gives me joy to know that I get to be a part of this, and I hope it does for you too. There's, there's something going on here, and it's an incredible thing, and um, and, and it is a, a joy-filled thing to see the transformation. And so John says the proclamation, just speaking up about this stuff, can bring joy. And I think we should follow his lead and speak up more. Um, I, I'll say this to dads since Father's Day. Dads, bring the joy in your home. Notice it. Notice the, the reasons for joy. Notice what God is doing in the world and mention it in your family. I don't mean bring the joy in the home like I, I tell all the dad jokes. Nobody gets much joy from your jokes, really, honestly. One, two, okay? But um, to, to bring joy to your home and, and, and notice that. And not just when your football team wins. Otherwise, you teach your kids that the only thing that we get joyful about and, and have enthusiasm about is that. But dads, lead the way maybe in your home on, on joy. Um, so that's, that's where we're going to start this series. Um, there is uh, proof that Jesus existed. I, uh, for John, it was undeniable proof. For, for the rest of us, uh, we have to live by some measure of faith in anything that happened in history. There's proof that Jesus lived and died and resurrected, and that speaks to some serious problems, issues, questions that we have, some spiritual realities um, and, and we need to speak up about it and, and share that with others and, and watch that bring some joy. So I guess the question I'd leave you with is, uh, where do you need to speak up about the truth of God this week? What context 
are you in where you might have an opportunity to speak up? And where do you need to dial into, into the sense of joy, um, where maybe where you're missing that? Um, and, and how are those things related? How could you speaking up actually bring some joy? I want you to think about that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, it is a, a, a joy to uh, proclaim, to speak, to teach, to uh, be part of this community, to see the faith of others that so pushes me and inspires me and encourages me. I pray that um, every person would walk out of here with uh, a little deeper knowing and a little deeper sense of faith in what you were doing. Um, and I pray that we would walk out of here with more joy um, because we are living a countercultural life, which can be hard, but it is good. And uh, God, so I, I thank you for all that you're doing in this community, um, for the chance encounters that lead to long relationships that are a beautiful thing. Um, I thank you for that, and uh, I pray you do more. God, may we, as a church, reach more people in this city. May more people turn to know you and give their lives to you and follow you and be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.